Good morning. So let's go ahead and start with, with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us. Our, our heart's desire is to see you, to know you, and to have unity with our hearts and minds with you and each other. We pray that you will bless us to this end. We, in your holy name, amen. We are doing our first uh, lesson in our new quarter called Backgrounds and Characters in the Old Testament. And the first lesson title is called Story and History. Story and History. And the memory verse this week is one we're all, we're all familiar with and we've heard, but it says, every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. Thoughts about that passage? Is it true? See a lot of heads nodding. Well, let's take that. I have with me, this is my Bible that I was given while I was on active duty with the U.S. Army for, for Desert Storm. It actually says right on here, Desert Storm. And so this passage tells us that every scripture is inspired. So let's read out of Tobit or Judith or the wisdom of Solomon or Sirach or Susanna. Or how about the Maccabees? They're in my Bible. Are you comfortable if we should study all those today? Or how about uh, the Book of Mormon? Should we read out of the, the Book of Mormon? Because the scripture is every scripture is inspired of God. Well, what makes it a scripture? So, should, would we be comfortable then, using these, these today? Now, I see some heads shaking. No, you were all enthusiastic such a, a moment ago. What happened? Look up Deuteronomy 14.26. Read Deuteronomy 14.26 to us. Uh, take the tithe and buy strong drink. This is how it goes. I- oh, well, th- we're not even to that one yet. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a side point. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. So, let's look at our text. It says every scripture is inspired of God. The question is, is it true? Is every scripture inspired of God? I think the scripture is inspired, but this for reproof, correction, and training doesn't always have to be a good example. Sometimes it can be a bad example. You see how we get locked in so quickly to something? Um, let's look at the... American Standard Version of the same passage of 2 Timothy 3.16. Now listen, see if you notice a difference. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof. Is there a difference? You notice the first one said, every scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. The second one says, every scripture inspired of God is profitable. Does it make a difference? Well, that's the big difference. Most of the translations have the is in the wrong place. Because every scripture is not inspired of God. But all scriptures that God inspired are profitable. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, with that in mind, then the next question that my mother was was, uh, leading us down is, is the entire Bible inspired of God? And what's the Deuteronomy text you want us to look up? 1426. Let's see what it says here. This is talking about the tithes. It says, be sure to set aside a tenth of your fields for produce and so forth and so forth in verse 22. And then verse 26, it says, if you can't, if you can't carry it, if it's too much produce to carry, then translate it into silver or gold and take the silver and gold. And then when you get to worship, it says, use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. 
Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord and your God and rejoice, uh, so forth. So, what do you all think? Should we take the tithe and go out to the, to the wine store and get some fermented drink? No, <laughs> I didn't make it up. You can check your own Bible. 14.26, Deuteronomy. How do we understand the Scripture? Is every passage in Scripture inspired of God? But you also take into context, because oh. drinking wine, as I understand it, was fairly common practice back there. But also the question is... Um, then in the New Testament, whatever the instructions given for the choosing of the, the elders and deacons of making sure that they're not going to uh, imbibe well, well, wait a second. Was it? Was it? The text is given to strong drink, which means they're not drunkards, but that doesn't mean that they don't take that. Actually, the, the more modern translations say they're not given to too much wine. Right. Yeah. Too much grape juice is bad. Is that what it means? No. No. It's 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 not. Yeah. So. This isn't a discussion on, on alcohol. This is a discussion on inspiration of Scripture. So we don't want to get diverted onto that. So the question still is, what do we mean when we say the Bible is inspired? Some people think every single word was inspired, as opposed to thought inspired. Is every word of the Bible inspired? It's in my translation, every word is inspired. Every word is inspired. Or are the ideas that the words represent inspired? How do you understand it? Is the Bible an expression of God's thoughts or men's thoughts? Both. This is what Ellen White says in First Selected Messages, page 21. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought or, and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, but God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Look at the different writers. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who, under the influence of the Holy Ghost, is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of men are the word of God. How do you make sense of that? But still today, as much as we uh, allow God to live and inspire through us, that we're still imperfect vessels, so that we still try to keep um, uh, the individuals that are in the Bible, as well as ourselves, try to keep ourselves fully open to the impressions of the Holy Spirit, and to communicating as best we can in an imperfect way, God's love, God's message, and God's... So the question, how is this book inspired? What do you understand it means when you read your word? What do you understand is inspired when you read this? 2 Peter 1.21 says, Only been spoke as they were inspired. There it is, right? Is that what Ellen White said? Yeah, so men are inspired. So when you read this, is every word inspired? So then are we wrong if we, if we stop and say, okay, 
what does this mean and, and look for the idea or the concept, or do we have to stay stuck on the literal expression as it was expressed? I mean, yeah, do we really believe that God inspired David to write that it would be good for him to crush his enemy's baby's head against rocks? Well, I, possibly. <laughs> yes. I, I think if we were closer to the original, uh, if we found a manuscript that was from Isaiah or whatever, I'd like to be a little more inclined to believe that it was closer to what the verbiage was. Although that's not my perception. But they did. We don't have those verbs, those things. But they did. They did find one. Wasn't it the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah. That's not, that's not close to the, the close. It's not the written word. From Isaiah. No. Isaiah didn't pin that. Um, I believe it was like a very, like, accurate. No. See, this goes then to the, the, the textual criticism he's, he's bringing up here. Can we t- trust the text? And my understanding is when you look at, for instance, the Septuagint, 70 different people copying, copying it in 70 different places, and then they compare the 70, they're all exactly the same. And if you believe that, I have a verdict. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not in doubt of that. The historical record supports your claim. Yes, it does. I, I'm not in doubt of that. I think they were very fastidious in their, in, their, in their scribal practices. The question is not whether it was... I don't really question whether the text is what the text is. I question, what do we understand the meaning of the text? Yes? It seems, Tim, within our church, perhaps sometimes we have a strong need to always be right about all the doctrines that we have... have uh, displayed through the years and learned. And I'm wondering if that same feeling about do we why do we need the Bible to have been dictated word by word by God so that it proves what we're trying to prove doctrinally? Or are we willing, like you're suggesting, I think that we gotta look at all sixty six and see what it's saying about God and try to have a paradigm that matches that rather than a strong need to be right on every point that proves that our church is right or that we're right. So, so she's getting in. How do we use it? So, uh, have we agreed that the, the scriptures are not word inspired; they're thought inspired? Have we agreed with that? And that it was the men who were inspired and used their own human language to express the concepts or ideas that God inspired them to understand. And we agreed with that much. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, have you always understood inspiration that way? No. Has there, is there other ideas on inspiration? Are people sometimes locked down into the idea that if the Bible said it, I can't question it, I just have to take it because it's inspired and I can, I'm not allowed to think about it. The, and only the King James, that's right. Only the King James was dictated from, from heaven. <laughs> Any other translation is evil. I mean, it, it's really bizarre to think about this. Have you, have you met people like this with the King James Version? It's very bizarre to think about. It's like... Do you really think that the Bible writers were writing in King James English? But somehow they lock in that only King James Bible is an accurate translation. It's very strange. Think about. So what is the primary purpose of this Bible? What is the purpose of the scripture? What's its function? What's its purpose primarily? 
Tell us about God, the truth about God. It seems like it's a record of God's interaction, so we can look and say, how has all of this happened so far, and what does this tell us about who God is? And it's, it's just there as a historical record, and I don't mean to diminish the Bible, but it's there because we don't know what happened then, but when we look back and read what happened then, we can go, ah, this is what he's like. This is what he's like. This is how he's related to us. Did everybody hear that? Yes. I agree with both the comments. It's a revelation of God. And to take that a step further, understanding the context, it's a sword, as the scripture says. It's a weapon. It's a tool we can use to demolish misrepresentations or distortions about God. And so listen to this. This is out of uh, Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 58. We should not take the testimony of any man as to what the scriptures teach, but should study the word Word of God for ourselves. If we allow others to do our thinking, we shall have crippled energies and contracted abilities. I want you to know, this is a criticism that our class, you know, our class has had a lot of criticisms thrown at it. (laughs) (laughs) Only one or two, he says. One of the criticisms, now, a lot of them about what I teach, but there's been one criticism, at least, about you guys. Do you know that it's been, and I've heard it from multiple sources in the community, that people say that you guys don't think for yourself that you let me tell you what to think. Have you not heard that? Yep, she said she's heard. Has anybody else heard it? Russell's heard it. Yep, okay. So this criticism is that, oh, you guys are just all, you know, letting letting Tim tell you what to think. None of you all think for yourself. That makes us a call, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) But this is one of the criticisms that come. And so I'm going to, and how many times have I said in class, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to get you to think. Okay, And so the same thing here. I would hate for you guys to believe anything because I said it. Don't believe it because I said it. After I say it, uh, hopefully it will stimulate you to check it out for yourself, weigh the evidences, reason that from cause to effect, and come to your own conclusion uh, for or against, based on your own evaluation of the evidence. Yes? I was just going to say, those comments apparently came from someone who did not attend, because uh, if they were to attend for any length of time, they would, they would have their uh, opinion demolished. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, so, yes, because we don't, we don't want that. It actually destroys, as it says here, if we allow others to do our thinking, we shall have crippled energies and contracted abilities. The noble powers of the mind may be so dwarfed by lack of exercise on themes worthy of their concentration as to lose their ability to grasp deep meaning of the Word of God. But listen to this. The mind will enlarge if it is employed in tracing out the subjects of the Bible, comparing Scripture with Scripture and spiritual things with spiritual, there is nothing more calculated to strengthen the intellect than the study of Scriptures. No other book is so potent to elevate the thoughts, to give vigor to the faculties as broad and nobling truths of the Bible. If God's Word were studied as it should be, men would have a breadth of mind, a nobility of character, and a stability of purpose that is rarely seen in these times. Do you agree with that? Yes. Why? Because it says so? Why would you agree with that? Experience. Okay, experience. What experience? Have you, have you had an experience where you studied the Word and, and your capacity for comprehension has expanded? Yes. Your perspective, your depth of wisdom, your discernment, has it grown as you've studied Scripture? Yes. Okay, so experience. Yes? There's also science uh, to support this now. Uh, you, you, you've uh, documented the studies quite uh, uh, completely about you know, pondering a loving God changes uh, function memory, memory function and brain function. 
Oh, but, but okay. Yes, he's right. There's no question. What he says is right. Can you study the scriptures and have your mind contracted? Yes. While it's true that your mind can expand and grow, and, 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 and if you're studying it with the right heart, mind, attitude, a lover, of, and this is the key, lover of truth. You know, it says in Thessalonians, those who were dying in the end or perish, they perish because they did not love the truth. Their heart attitude was, remember Christ said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you find eternal life, but these are they which testify or teach of me. They weren't looking for truth. They were looking for power, secrets, proof. Right. They were looking to engrandize themselves as to be the the, uh, interpreter of the law and the word. So they weren't looking for truth. They were looking for something to justify them and what they were doing. So you can study the word and become a doctor of the law of the word and still have your mind contracted. You can be, you can have a degree, you know, D-man or, or doctorate of theology and have your mind contracted because those guys who put Christ on the cross were the doctors of the, of the law. Yes. When I first became a Christian, I went to camp meeting at Grand Ridge, in Grand Ridge, Michigan, and I bought all of Ellen Hart's books. No. And then I would study my Sabbath school lesson, and I would it would tell me to go, you know, where. And uh, I would get there, and I would find it underlined. I'm the only one reading those books, and I didn't remember it. And I said, Lord, what is the point of my reading this if I can't remember it? Then I came across Alan White's quote that said, everything you see, read, or hear, uh, is forever recorded in your brain and it influences you toward good or evil whether or not you can remember it. I said, sweetheart, just keep reading. (laughs) (laughs) Did everybody hear that? Good. Okay. Um, So the lesson is pointing out that the Bible is filled with stories. When we form our doctrines as an organization, as a people, as an individual... Do we typically use the stories to form our doctrines, or do we use the proof texts? And we relegate the stories to the children. Might I suggest to you that we've got it backwards? That in fact, the proof texts are for the children, and the stories are for the mature. For instance, who needed the written law, thou shalt not? The mature or the immature? Who needed instructions to treat their wives like Christ treats the church? The mature or the immature? The immature. The exhortations and directives and instructions that we form our doctrines off of, I would suggest, are primarily for the children. Or the stories are for the mature. And we've missed something in our understanding by relegating the, the stories to the children. So why are the stories so important? give you a picture that you can always see, vision, you can always see it in your mind. He says they give you a picture, a vision, you can always see in your mind of? Of God actually working in real time in action. We don't get to see a, a, a declared description. We get to see him working in real time in action. And this then we get to see what he's like in the stories. So let's look at the Sunday's lesson. It says, in the top paragraph, A plot is defined as a succession of events that lead to a conclusion. Everyone is born, lives, and one day will die. These are the broad parameters of the plot of life. In between, life consists of many smaller plots that are 
that often are motivated by conflict or tension. Looking for a plot means trying to connect all the relevant parts of the story in order to see the big picture. In the book of Job, for example, there are two plots. Before we get to Job, question, what is the plot? What is the plot of this book, of the Bible? To reveal the true character of God. Salvation. Salvation. Other thoughts on the plot? Hope. Hope. Why we were created. This is... The great controversy. The great controversy. Well, this is out of the book called Child Guidance 505. It says, In its wide range of styles and subjects, the Bible has something to interest every mind and appeal to every heart. In its pages are found history of the most ancient, biography, truest to life, principles of government for the control of the state, for the regulation of the household, principles that human wisdom has never equaled. It contains philosophy, the most profound, poetry, the sweetest and the most sublime, the most impassioned and the most pathetic. Immeasurably superior in value, value to the production of any human author are the Bible writings, even when thus considered but of infinitely wider scope, of infinitely greater value, are they when viewed in their relation to the grand central thought. What is the grand central thought of Scripture? God is love. Did you hear what he said? God is love is the grand central thought. And it goes on to say, viewed in this light, in the light of this thought, every topic has new significance. In the most simply stated truths are involved principles that are as high as heaven and that compass eternity. What principles are as high as heaven and compass eternally connected to the grand central thought? Law of love, he said. Well, she goes on to say in book Education 190, and I know you've heard this because with this statement, I want us to expand and see if we can actually bring this down to where we live. It says, the student should learn to view the word as a whole and to see the relation of its parts. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme. Now she gives us some clues of what the grand central theme of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, of the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. He should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience, how in every act of life he, re- he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives and how whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. What is the plot? Do you hear a plot? No? No plot? Choice. Is there, is the word controversy kind of, what's that suggest to you, word controversy? Each side of the controversy. Two antagonistic principles. Is there a plot being set up here? To make God look like Satan. To make God look like Satan. That would be Satan's goal, wouldn't it? Yeah. The grand central theme, God is love. But God's character of love, is it clearly understood and seen through human history? Or as part of the plot that's in Scripture that this has been questioned, this has been misrepresented, that there's a controversy over who God is. How do we understand Him? How does He behave? Is He a God who, who behaves like we behave? 
Or is he something, something better than that? Aren't you, aren't you hopeful he's better than that? Well, this is why Christ came in person. She said, this is why Christ came in person. Do you see this controversy? Do you, can you articulate the two antagonistic principles? What are they? Love and selfishness. She says good and evil. Let's be more specific. Love, which, how, how would you describe love? God's character. God's character. How else? Other-centered giving. Other-centered giving. Selflessness. Beneficence versus selfishness. Me first. Survival of the fittest. Watch out. Do you see that these are two antagonistic principles, completely opposite? I love you so much, I'll do whatever I can to promote your well-being, health, happiness, including, if it comes down to it, give my life that you might live. You get the lifeboat, I'll stay on the Titanic. Versus survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to promote myself, keep myself healthy and wealthy, including if it comes down to it, knock you out so I can get the last seat on the lifeboat from the Titanic. I mean, isn't that the two antagonistic principles at war? In our hearts and minds? Yeah, we see these. Do, do we struggle with those in real life, in real time? Yes. How has Satan's system, his system of me first, survival the fittest, right to rule over, to control, how has that system infiltrated Christian thinking? Let's look at the plot. What is the basis of Satan's system? What's well, selfishness? My way or die? And how does Satan achieve his way? Well, let's look in heaven. When he started with the angels in heaven, what's his first approach? What's his first method of, 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 of getting people to his side? Flattery. Lies, flattery, deception. And when he started in Eden, what was his method with Eve in Eden? Lies, Lies flattery, deception. Okay. And how about with Christ in the wilderness? Does Satan approach Christ in the wilderness? What method did he come with first? Same thing. Lies, flattery, deception, and a little bribery. A little bribery. Hey, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Okay, we had a little little flavor added in. A little bribery, a little inducement. I think that was also with Eden. Hey, you could be like God. A little inducement, a little bribery. So we got this going. Trying to, and his goal here is to convert. He's trying to get converts, isn't he? Now, a third of the angels were converted. So we don't see, if, if they're not converted, what his next step is when we look at the angels. Adam and Eve were converted. We don't see what his next step is with Adam and Eve's conversion. Was Christ converted? No, Christ resisted, said no. So when Satan's methods to convert flattery, deception, bribery don't work, what's his next step? Coercive pressure. And did pressure come to bear on Christ? And then when coercive pressure doesn't work and you still stand true, what's next? Execution. Death. These are Satan's. I want you to see them very clearly. Satan's kingdom always operates with the presentation of gentleness and converting attempts first, then coercive pressure, and then execution. Let's look at the beast system, the man of sin that the Bible tells us about in the Dark Ages. How would the beast system operate through the Dark Ages? This system that wants to take over and control, how, what's its method? First, first thing, sends out missionaries. Missionaries always go first, don't they? And what do the missionaries do? They assist the people. Provide water and clothing and medical and whatever they can. And, and while simultaneously they're preaching the gospel of the system. Trying to convert. Trying to convert trying to convert. Some convert, some don't. 
What happens to those who resist? What's next? Coercive pressure. Oh, those who are converted, they get privileges. They get political appointments. They get uh, uh, bigger houses. They get better food. They get and, and then imprisonment, more coercive pressure. And if they still resist, what would, the, what, that, what would that system do to people who were infidels and would not convert to the system? And what happened to the martyrs? I mean, you know, this is exactly what happened. They killed them, execute. You see the exact same pattern. You see it. Now, what do we say? What does the penal models of, of the atonement tell us of God's methods? He sends his apostles and his prophets and ultimately his son as his missionaries to bring the truth to convert. And if you don't convert, well, then he brings tribulations and plagues and tornadoes and storms to coerce you. And if you still don't convert, then in the end, what will God have to do in order to be just? He'll have to burn you and kill you. Do you see it's the exact same method of Satan? Satan has gotten Christianity to teach that God's character looks like Satan's character. This is the grand lie. And I want you to see the consequence. What is the consequence, the outcome in the lives of people if they buy into the system of the dark ages that teaches this is what God is like? Served by fear. It, it induces fear. And one of, one of two outcomes, there's only two outcomes here. One outcome is, you become non-thinking, empty shells, passive, and you become darkened in your mind. What, 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 they didn't call it the dark ages for no reason. Okay? The minds become darkened. Or, rebellion. And look at Europe today. The, 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 the bastion of that system, where it had its deepest roots held, what do they think about God in Europe today? He doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. Well, do you think Satan really cares whether you actually believe God is like the devil or you believe there is no God at all? He's happy with either one. You rejected God. That's his point. And so his system leads to destruction of individuality or the rejection of God altogether. And this is what happens when you promote God's character as Satan's character. And this is what's happening. Our church, this is... If you've read your, your, your prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, there's the mother of harlots, and there's a whole bunch of daughter prostitutes, and they're all teaching the same thing. And what are they teaching? That God sends his ambassadors and his missionaries, then he sends his coercive pressure, and when you, you, don't, you think I'm kidding, just listen to the news every time there's a great natural disaster. The tsunami, the Hurricane Katrina, I mean, the, 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 the advocates of this message were all over the news. God was punishing. God was punishing. God was punishing. And then still they're preparing the world for the great masquerade that's coming when an angel of light comes claiming to be Christ and he will speak eloquent words and he will speak melodiously and he will perform miracles and he will claim he's here to heal and restore and convert and those more will be converted, but some will resist. And what happens to those that resist? What's, what's Revelation tell us? We can neither buy nor sell. Coercive pressure. And if we don't give in to coercive pressure, then what? The death penalty. It's the same pattern. And so we're teaching in our Christianity that God says, I love you. 
I send my apostles, my, my prophets, my son, and, and, and the final gospel message is going to the world. But if you don't love me, I will ultimately have to kill you in the end. Is there any difference between that and, the, and what we see the B system doing? No difference at all. It is a lie. And it is being promulgated in our, our church. And it's time that we take our church back. We use the weapon, the weapon of the word. It's time that we actually start presenting the truth about God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Yes? It's almost harder to overcome that, though, because it's bathed in the, the concept of being in the true church. And just as if, you know, just like if a father were to sexually abuse a child, that's more damaging than, than being abused by someone else. When, when our church puts that cloak over it and makes it be, quote, right. It's, you know, it's harder. Let's see another place where this was. He said it's our church. It's hard because we, we're the, the, the church. The Jewish nation 2,000 years ago, were they God's church on earth? Yes. Did Satan infect their thinking about God and his methods? Did they believe, uh, in fact, that God would use coercive power and pressure? And what did they end up doing in the end? See, they had, even though they were God's chosen, they, had, they were given the prophets, the apostles, they were, I mean, the prophets and the feast days and the sanctuary system and all the blessings that God gave them to teach them. Satan was so effective in distorting God's true character that when he appeared and walked among them, they hated him and they killed him. So our church is not immune from these distortions about God. And this is what the grand central theme is all about. Who is God like? And this is why it says, for though we live in the world, we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. This is the central theme over God's character. And when you believe the lie, it changes us so that we ultimately become people who, in, with apparently clear consciences, can put people at the stake and burn them in the name of our God. Put bombs on ourselves and blow up buildings in the name of our God. Shoot abortion doctors in the name of our God. It's happening right now all around us. Burn the Quran. Burn the Quran in the name of our God. Yeah, you heard that in the news recently. Yes. Attention seeking. So, the lesson asks us to consider the story of Job and asks us to identify uh, to consider two plots in the story. And I like that the fact that the lesson is is moving our thinking away from just seeing the here and now temporal stuff to try to elevate us to a larger view. Ellen White talked about the two antagonistic principles that are entering every phase of human experience. In the story of Job, do you see two antagonistic principles at war? Yeah. Do you see how they're related to the grand central theme? Do you see how Satan works? You notice in the story of Job, what did God actually do? Granted freedom. That's it. But do you notice who got blamed for all that? All the servants came to Job. And now we, we have the backdoor scene on this. The veil's pulled back and Satan is doing all this destruction. Notice a couple of critical things. When God put Job into Satan's hands, God did not restrict Satan except that he couldn't kill him. There was only restriction. Which meant that Satan was free to bless him. Remember, Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, right? So Satan had kingdoms he could give him. Job could have been proclaimed the emperor of the world under Satan's power if he wanted to be. But what did Satan do instead? He brought pain, suffering, death, and destruction. Because Satan is the destroyer. He's revealing. When he's off his leash, what does he do? 
This is what I, I have talks with patients a lot of times at all. And they're in relationships with people that, that injure them. And they stay in these relationships where they get hurt over and over again. And I, I step back and I tell them the story of the scorpion and the frog. You know the story. Scorpion says to the frog, um, can I have a ride across the lake on your back? Frog says, no, no way. If you go too near me, you'll sting me and I'll die. Frog says, well, I wouldn't sting you. If I sting you, we'll both drown. We'll both die. So the scorpion, the frog says, sure, hop on. So halfway across the lake, scorpion stings the frog. And as the poison's working its way through, the frog says, why did you do that? Now we're both going to die. Scorpion says, it's my nature. Mm-hmm. What is the nature of a scorpion? To sting. What is the nature of a snake? To bite. What's the nature of the devil? To destroy. What is the nature of God? To love, to love and to heal. Two different natures. And the, and, and, the, and the devil wants us to actually think God is like him. And so, in much of Christianity, it is taught with great reverence that God, in order to be holy and just, must use his power to, in, to inflict just penalties and execute the wicked in the end. And so what happens is we become afraid of God rather than afraid of sin, which is destroying us. So, the two antagonistic powers, we see the plot, and if we, read in, um, we move on to Monday's lesson, it asks us to consider David. David and Joseph. David was alone in a cave with King Saul and had the opportunity to kill him. And Joseph was approached by Potiphar's wife for a seductive encounter. What methods? I want you to look. Here we are again. What methods were being used on both of these individuals? First, did did, did, uh, did Potiphar's wife, for instance, when she approached Joseph, what method did she use? Flattery, seduction, deception. And when she didn't get her way, what came next? Coercive pressure and even threat of death, except God was intervening to protect. You see the same method at work here. Now, it's asking us to consider the setting. To consider the setting. What was David setting and what was Joseph setting? See, we want to say a cave and a room in Egypt. Yes. David was anointed. He was the anointed one. Yes, he was. And so you could, he could have very well justified doing anything because he was the anointed, but he did not. But wasn't King Saul the anointed one too? Yes. So, and in fact, David says that. He wouldn't raise his hand against God's anointed. Didn't he say that? After he was anointed. So he still recognized the anointing on Saul, even though Saul was apostatizing and rebellious. He wouldn't take his hand and raise against Saul. So you're right. And that's maybe one of the reasons why David was anointed, because he had that deference. Yeah. Both of them, both of them were in exile against their will. Ah, so both of them were in exile. So we're looking at the setting. One setting is the earthly setting, exile against their will, people out to get them, mistreatment, it's unfair, places they don't really deserve. That's one way to look at it. But what was Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife with her, with her offer? Can't sin against my God. Ah, I can't sin against my God. What was his setting? Was it just earthly? No. You see, the devil wants to, to constrict our view that we see things only here and now. But when we have a larger view and we see an eternal reality, same thing with Christ in the wilderness. What did the devil focus him on? The kingdoms of the earth. But where was Christ's focus? It's a different setting. And I'm going to suggest to you that, that there is this reality that we live in, but this reality is set within a larger setting. 
And if we only think of the setting of earth, then we actually miss the larger setting. And what gives us power to stand firm is when we remember our current setting is set in a larger setting. How about Elisha when the Assyrian army came? What was the setting? Well, the servant saw one setting. Elisha saw a different setting. Did it make a difference to see things from Elisha's perspective? Exactly. Exactly. And this is our challenge. The devil wants to constrict us. And notice, as we think about motivations to action, the two antagonistic principles we're trying to trace through human history, what is it the devil plays on? He tries to inflame up his character in us. His character is motivated by selfishness, watching out for number one. So notice with Joseph, do you think Joseph was tempted to watch? Do you think he was stressed? Do you think he was like, oh no, if I don't do this, I could be in trouble. Oh boy. Either way, I mean, he he knew if he went along with it, his his issues with God, he, he couldn't do this. Conscience wouldn't let him. But do you think there was pressure? She could threaten him. She could lie. She could do all this stuff. She could have him killed. What about David? Was Saul actually trying to kill him? Yes. Do you think some part of him said, here's my chance. I'm already anointed by God, as you said. I'm already anointed. Uh, This guy's trying to kill me. He's already apostatized. Uh, Here's my chance. I can protect me. Do you see how easy that would be to argue? How about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Daniel. Do you see how they were faced with watching out for me? Watching out for me. Watching out for me. That's the setting. Hey, right now, uh, I've got to to protect myself right now. This is the setting. I'm going to die if I don't don't do something to protect me. What was the real setting? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God can protect us from the flame. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing. They recognized their setting was an eternal reality in which billions of intelligent beings are, are looking in. We're a theater, a lesson book, into angels, into men. And they said, we can't be responsible. And, and this is, this is a, a kind of a, a new way that I've been looking at what it means that the just shall live by faith. What does it mean to live by faith? For me, the way I've, I've, I've been looking at this recently is, to live by faith means we absolutely trust God with how things turn out. Our responsibility is in governance of the decisions we make in real time. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, our choice is to bow or not bow. That's the only choice we can make. We can't choose how it's going to turn out. We can choose whether we'll bow. We can choose whether we won't bow. We won't bow. Whether we burn or don't burn, that's up to God. I'm going to trust him with the outcome. I trust him with how it's going to turn out. That is very clarifying to me when I think about the situations I found myself in day in, day out. Because I know that I'm tempted to start worrying about how's it going to turn out? What's the outcome going to be? And I start trying to make decisions that are going to be good for me in the outcome. Which is all about self. But the just live by faith. They do what's right because it is right and trust God with how it turns out. Yes, Linda. Oh, absolutely. She says, can our own salvation become a selfish thing? Traditionally, I think that's exactly what the devil promotes at us. He makes us afraid of God with this distorted idea and then tells us that we need to be saved and it's all about us getting saved. And the whole gospel message is not about the good news about God. The gospel message is the good news that you can be saved. So self becomes the center of the whole gospel and the Bible is no longer about God. The Bible is about how you can find salvation. By getting God on your side. By getting God on your side through the blood payment of a son. 
Tuesday's lesson. Bottom paragraph says, when we lose the big picture of what God has in mind for us, minors become majors. Israel lost its perspective as a nation. Tribalism took over. Throughout the book of Judges, the various tribes and clans were ready and willing to fight one another. Religious practices were fused according to um, personal convenience and so forth. So the question, do we as a modern people, as a modern church, struggle with losing our focus on what God has called us to accomplish? Do we today make minors into majors? Yes. What has God called this movement, this organization to accomplish? What's our purpose? To make him known, he said. To make him known. Do we expect, do we expect real time today to live victoriously in a love with God and love for others more than than controlled by fear and selfishness? Or do we expect to be fear-ridden, insecure, controlled people forever? Do we expect a real victory of love in our lives? Do we expect to experience peace with God and peace internal to ourselves while we are in a world that's in conflict all around us? Do we expect that? Or do we expect that's not possible? We just expect legal pardon stamped on a book in heaven. That's what we expect. Or do we expect a transformation within? What are we to witness to the world? The final message of mercy is the truth about God's character of love, but how are we to present it? Does it have anything to do with our own hearts, our own minds, our own characters, the way we live and act and and treat people? Does that have anything to do with the presentation? Yes. Where does God's law fit in? As a people, do we ever emphasize there's going to be a conflict between God's law and a counterfeit law in the end? Do we ever present that? I don't hear any answers. Do we make a major point out of a minor in this presentation? What about the Sabbath? Is the final conflict between God and Satan over simply which day of the week you go to church on? Has it ever been presented that way? Yes, it's not about that. What is it about? How is it, how, what is the final conflict about? Two antagonistic principles or powers. What are those principles and powers? Character of Satan and the character of God. The character of Satan and the character of God. And God's law will be contested. There's no question about it. But what is God's law? Do you understand it? Do you, uh, do you, do you live it? Or have you bought into this idea that there is justifiable homicide? It is okay in certain circumstances for the persons in authority to exercise killing force. So God, in certain circumstances, is okay for him to execute the wicked in the end, and it's still love. But what's that system? Remember the system we just talked about? Missionaries, coercive pressure, executing force. Coercive powers found only under Satan's government, according to Ellen White. Only under Satan's government. Yes. That concept of coercive power and execution force, it's about if you don't believe like me, I will kill you. Where God says, if you don't believe me, I'll let you go. Exactly. Oh, yes. Let's see if there's, oh, beautifully said, well said. And this is the two powers. These are the two sources. God's law is law of love, which is, which requires genuine, real freedom, doesn't it? Can love exist without freedom? No, it requires freedom. So God always respects his, his system of freedom. So how will the Sabbath be involved in that? 
the Sabbath being a representation of God giving us the freedom to choose, whether to choose to believe and follow Him and have that time of rest with Him, or whether to choose to walk away from Him and have other things. Isn't that still a symbol of, of His law of love and choice? I like what she's saying. Do y'all hear that? No, she said didn't hear. The Sabbath is a symbol of his, of, his, of his principles and freedom. Those who put Christ on the cross, which law were they keeping? God's or, uh, or Satan's? But which day were they worshiping on? The Sabbath. Okay, you can worship on the quote-unquote right day and still live Satan's law in your life. That law of coercive, destructive power. So... We have to advance our thinking beyond which day of the week it is. Have you ever heard the Sabbath presented in ways that actually argue Satan's picture of God? Arbitrary test. If you don't do it, blah, 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 blah. Just like the Jews did in Christ's day. How did Christ interact with the Sabbath? Did he stop working? He says, I am always working and my father is always working. Oh, they didn't like that, did they? No. So what does the, they re- represent, as we talked last week? Yes? Uh, I was going to talk not about the Sabbath, but in Christ's description of the final judgment, it describes a group of people who preached, who worked miracles, and did all sorts of things, and yet God never knew them. I love it, because they did those things toward what goal? Toward what methods were they practicing? Yes, and these are the two antagonistic principles we must must follow through. There will come a time when each of us will be called to whether we're going to join forces with those who would coerce and pressure others to believe the way we do. Or whether we're going to stand up and say no. Have we maybe even experienced a little course of pressure time to time in our lives? You ever experienced that? Yes. And our goal is to not practice those methods in retaliation. That's the temptation. When people treat us that way, that we retaliate, that we don't, we don't want to do that. We want to say, hey, I'm going to present the truth in love and leave you free. You're free. If that's the way you want to see it, that's true. But are all beliefs equally healthy? While you're free to believe anything you want, all beliefs are not equally healthy. If you believe cigarette smoking helps your lungs, well, you're free to believe that. But it's not equally healthy. Linda. Back to the Sabbath issue. Jesus said in John, you don't understand the meaning of my miracles. And so on Sabbath, look at the miracles he did on Sabbath. And see if he's trying to tell you something about the Sabbath through the miracles. For example, recreating a man's eyesight and brain for a man born blind on the Sabbath. Does he say, does that mean that he wants to use the Sabbath to recreate our sight and our thinking? Taking a paralyzed man. There were a bunch of sick people around. He picked one paralyzed man for years and years. It gave him the ability to walk on the Sabbath. Maybe he wants to tell us that on the Sabbath he needs to unparalyze our spiritual nature, etc. I like it. I like it. There's another hand somewhere. Far side. <coughs> oh, yes. Um, in relation to the Sabbath, I think it's also important to understand it as, as we're expanding our understanding of God and the, the message of hope and his love. That it's not that we're discarding these principles, that we still treasure the Sabbath as something very wonderful and sacred, but it's looking beyond the uh, restriction of just, I'm keeping it because uh, he said to in the, the Ten Commandments, but that we're celebrating his love and his freedom in that, and we still treasure it. We're just looking beyond it to the, the base of God's love and Oh, exactly. I wasn't trying to suggest it was no longer, yeah, no. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, good. 
Yeah, he says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw them into me. He's not going to. They're not going to be drawn to him for keeping the law. They're going to be drawn to him because you know he's the one that will go find the one lamb. You know. Oh, exactly. He's going to go everything he has to do to go get it, and, and that's what we're going to be like. You know, we're going to have that same attitude. We're going to go after the one. You know. He he says that what draws men is when Christ is lifted up, not when the law is lifted up. And that's exactly right. We uplift Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the law, and we see what the law looks like when it's written on the heart, because Jesus had the perfect fulfillment of the law. And that's what the law looks like. Self-sacrificing love at every turn. Never does forgiveness end. Never does grace end. Never does, does redeeming love end. Jesus never comes to a point where he says, I've forgiven you to this point and no more. Now it's time for wrath. Forgiveness never ends. But some people, as you've mentioned, turn their back on him. And let's look at Wednesday's lesson, which asks us to read 1 Samuel 8, 7 through 20. And we won't read the whole thing, but this is where they ask for kings. And Samuel was hurt. And God says to Samuel, don't you get your feelings hurt. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But go to them and warn them. Give us all the warnings about how they're going to take your daughters and how they're going to take your sons and put them in the military and how they're going to tax you and how they're going to take their lands and how they're going to take your best foods and how they're going to do this, do this, do this, do this to you. Warn them, warn them, warn them. But they still insisted on having kings. And so in verse 21, it says, When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Listen to them and give them a king. What do you hear happening in this process? Why did they get kings? Because God wanted them to have them? So what was God's action in these circumstances? To let them go. And what was the consequence to their choosing to go against what God wanted for them? What was the consequence? Did God begin using his power to punish them and make them pay? What happened to the kingdom? It fractured very quickly by the third king, after the third king, so on the fourth king, it was already fractured into two kingdoms. Why was it fractured? Well, what did Solomon do? Huge taxation, huge taxation to build all the palaces and things he did. And then Rehoboam comes, Solomon's son, and says, I'm going to tax you even more. And so they rebelled and ten, ten tribes split away. So within, within four kings, we've got the, the kingdom split. And then... Then the apostasy, the, the worshiping of all the false gods, blah, 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 and the, eventually the entire destruction of the nation. So does this story, see this story is not a proof text. You won't read this story and say, here is a, a statement, a claim text. But you see God in action. What does God do to people who insist on doing things their way, despite the fact he warns and warns and warns and reproves? This is evidence of how God works. So, can we apply that across time and space? Well, this is out of Last Day Events, page 242. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come out directly from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Does that sound like he was, what he was doing with Israel? Warning, correcting, reproving, pointing out the only safe way. He says, um, then, if the, those who have been the object of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at land and on sea, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. 
God will use his enemies as instruments to punish those who have followed their own pernicious ways, thereby, uh, their own pernicious way, whereby the truth of God has been misrepresented, misjudged, and dishonored. Already the Spirit of God insulted, refused, abused, is being withdrawn from the earth. Just as fast as God's Spirit is taken away, Satan's cruel work will be done upon land and sea. Do you see the two antagonistic principles? Do you see what God does? He, he reproves, he corrects, he warns, he, he admonishes, he, he pleads, he woos, he, he, he tries to convince us, but on the end, does he leave us free to make up our own mind? And we make up our own mind to do our own thing. He doesn't give his angels to protect us from the consequence of our own choice. That's why the wicked die in the end. God doesn't have to use his power to in, destroy them. Is it not true that God is the source of all life? Yes. So if you insist on saying, I don't want you in my life, Lord. I want to be free from you. I want to go my own way. Do my own thing. If God lets you 100% go from him, what happens? You die. You die. And the wages of sin is death, as the scripture says. So um, we're about done. Let's close with prayer, and then I have an announcement to make. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not like that B system. That you present truth and love and give us real freedom. And that you don't coerce us or pressure us or threaten to kill us if we don't do it your way. It's true that we will suffer miserably outside of your, your principles, but not at your hand. And we know that you will be heartbroken and crying and seeking to deliver us from ourselves. We turn our hearts and minds back to you now and ask for your rejuvenating presence to restore your character in us. Give us enlightenment. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom and give us the ability to present these truths clearly to set so many minds free. We pray in your holy name. Amen.